0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slate Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We'd like to thank our media sponsor at MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Dr. Joshua Bennett at the St. Paul public library. Joshua Bennett is a prize-winning poet and spoken word artist. He gained critical acclaim in 2016 with the Sobbing School, winner of the national poetry series and a finalist for an NAACP image award. Bennett's follow-ups, Ode in 2020 and The Study of Human Life in 2022 solidified his standing as one of his generation's most resonant and needed poetic voices. In a starred review for Ode, Publishers Weekly raves these powerful, crisp poems celebrate the complexity, joy, and heartbreak of the Black experience in America. Bennett's newest release is Spoken Word. A Cultural History. In it, he tracks the origins and broad impact of a resilient art form that has long-centered voices and experiences outside the dominant cultural narrative. In addition to his writing, Bennett is a professor at Dartmouth College and founding editor of Minor Notes, a Penguin Classics book series dedicated to the rediscovery of underappreciated black poets from the 19th and 20th centuries.
1: Thanks so much. and you for that introduction. How are y'all doing? Y'all okay? I recognize some faces. Yeah, I was about to say. It's good to see y'all. I'm gonna read a little bit from the book today, but I also just thought it might make sense since it's a book about poetry, and I'm a poet to do some poems, so I think I'm gonna do that. I wrote one of them on a plane here, <laughs> and it's about libraries in part because I really appreciate the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library bringing me, but also because it was in a library that I discovered Poetry Slam. Uh, The Yonkers Public Library, I was 11 years old, which meant that it was 1999. Uh, And my mother had taken me there to do homework on the weekend, because that's just how my mom was. You know, it was, we're gonna get up, we're gonna go to the library, and we're gonna work for hours on Saturday. And uh, there was a Poetry Slam there that day. And I didn't know what a poetry slam was. When I heard slam, I thought about WWF, Degeneration X, X X-Pac, you know, Badass Billy Gunn. These were my people uh, back in the day. Triple H. I was a big Triple H fan, too. And my mom told me to sign up for this contest. Well, she encouraged me. I said, son, sign up. You know, gifts are meant to be given, is what my mom said. And that's really how she talks. So she signed me up for this poetry slam uh, that had all adults in it. I was the only child in the competition. And I took second place uh, (laughs) with my poem, Hope and Love, which I just memorized. And five months ago, my mother sent that trophy back to my house. So now it holds a place of honor in my office in Braintree, Massachusetts. So this is um, ode to the Yonkers Public Library and every single other one, too. Everything here is free including me. All at once I am a spaceship and a mountain range and a pirate with a backpack and a battle axe and a customary black hat on the open sea. Like any good adventurer, I brought my mom with me. This afternoon we will drive uptown for ice cream, pistachio and rocky road, two scoops each. But for now, I am too entranced by the magic of mythology and young adult fiction to focus on such ordinary miracles as waffle cones and rainbow sprinkles dashing across the sawmill expressway with the windows down so the car ride feels like I'm in the backseat skydiving. No, at this moment, on this Saturday morning in 1999, I am lost in the alternate timelines of Animorphs and Maniac McGee. I am sprinting at historically unprecedented speeds through my own imagination. I am battling extraterrestrial invaders as a grizzly bear, a Siberian tiger, an osprey, a mako shark darting through the endless deep, the water surrounding my sandpaper skin as black as the inside of a fist. I spend the entire day like this, dancing from reverie to reverie, shelf to shelf, sharpening the habit I will carry for years, the books stacked around my table like a tower, a fortress of gratitude I learned to live another inviolable life inside of. The quiet here is so different from the soundscape at home on Olympia Avenue. That chorus of laughter and sirens, the fireworks and gunplay I cannot yet tell apart, the music of multiple continents filling the atmosphere a soundtrack to our skirmishes and invincible joy. Here, I am everywhere. I can scale this wall of text to outer worlds. I can look through the language of strangers, a lens honed by soul and see you there on the other end, pulling one of the countless bright lines binding us. This life, this love, this bridge, We can't stop singing. Thank you. So I'll do uh, two more poems and then I'll read a short passage from the book and then maybe we can just talk about what brought you all here. This is so sweet. This is also the longest I've ever been away from my sons. This is very surreal. Uh, My baby boy, August Galileo was born at the very top of the pandemic, October, 2020. And uh, his mom went back to work six months after he was born. But I won this great fellowship to write this book called The Guggenheim. And so I was home for another year and it was just me and a baby. And it's like very it's, it's kind of hard to explain to people. I mean, I couldn't go to his ultrasounds because of pandemic protocol. And then all of a sudden he was just here, this small organism. And all of a sudden, all the chemicals in my brain had changed. So I was Spider-Man and he would start rolling off of the couch. and I would leap across and catch him. Right. And it And I've just never really gone back. I kind of almost can't remember what I used to be like. Um, And it's become like my primary identity in a a very strange way, like being August Pop. So yeah, I'm thankful for him for so many reasons. I'll I'll probably show off a baby picture later today. Uh, This next poem is, um, I wrote this many years ago when I had not yet, I guess I, I always wanted to be a dad. I wanted to be a dad when I was like five years old. But this poem I wrote the year after I graduated from college. Uh, I went to a a place in Philadelphia called UPenn and at Penn, you have to take a physical sciences course to graduate. I did not know this uh, by my senior year. (laughs) I had already been chosen as the graduation speaker. I got into grad school. I thought, boom, peace, I'm out of here, right? I was not out of there, not yet, Uh, it turns out, if I did not take this physical sciences class. So I looked through the course registrar, right, and I found oceanography and I thought, okay, this is perfect. Like I grew up in church. Moses, Noah, those are my guys. Moby Dick's my favorite novel. I know about the ocean, right? We're all set. Oceanography has nothing to do with any of that, as many of you might know. And so uh, I was in a rough spot for a little bit, but I do remember the professor saying something that stuck with me, which is that a, a blue whale has a heart the size of a car, right? And for any of you who are educators, you know, that's not the most illustrative metaphor. Humvee, Prius, very different species of car, different gas mileage, and the whole thing but I do remember knowing that even at 21 years old, I wanted to give someone a love that big one day. So I went home and I wrote this poem. It's called Belay That is the genus specification for the blue whale. And uh, yeah, now it's dedicated to my wife, Pam, uh, who's at home with our little boy and is uh, not just my best friend, but the best Collaborator in watching reality television, you could hope for. Like, we just watched the Love is Blind reunion together the other day. Yeah. We could talk about that too. And like Marshall's facial expressions. Um. This is all going on the podcast, isn't it? Whatever. It's fine. All right. This is a belaying up, Tara. When we are old, hair, the color of tombstones, bones that sound like wet windshield wipers. Whenever we slow dance through the living room, I imagine that I will look you in the eye as if there is something small and precious in prison there and say to you, darling, did you know that a blue whale has a heart the size of a car? When you reply correctly, as you always seem to do when I ask you difficult questions about oceanography, I'll probably just laugh. Rejoicing over the fact that every time you smile, it makes the wrinkles at the corner of your eyes look like six willow branches, all lifting their heads from prayer in unison. The wind humming a somber hymn beneath its breath, just as our anthem jogs to a close, and I whisper in your ear, how did you know that I was the one? when all of those well-dressed jackals came galloping to your door, begging for the rights to your ring finger. What made you lock the deadbolt on your ribs, looking them squarely in the face and saying with joy, I'm keeping all of this beauty for someone I've never even met. Did you ever doubt, ever sit in your dorm room and think that maybe your soulmate had chosen someone a lot more boring, but a lot less picky than you and opted for the easy way out of a life filled with love when I was 22 years old, beard freshly grown, an ocean away from my family with the kind of pain that drives people to do selfish, barely forgivable things. I dreamt of you nightly, hunted for your smile in every audience that I broke for, hoping that I could literally steal a glance, download it onto my retinas and replay the moment our eyes first played freeze tag, and neither one of us wanted to stop being it, so we just kept on touching, hoping that father time would give us a hall pass and allow us to orbit one another forever. And speaking of orbits, did you know that there are more stars in the sky than grains of sand on the entire planet and that'll give you either one if you merely asked peel the night from the sky's skin like the rind of an orange or ask God if I could borrow the breeze for just a moment and blow the shoreline of every beach into a giant hourglass made just for us and say this This is how long I will adore the things about you that no one else even notices. Like your laugh and how it sounds like a mix of Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock and two rainstorms singing perfectly in tune. Those orthopedic shoes and how they always match your cardigans perfectly. Those crooked glasses. How they dangle at the edge of your nose like the legs of two lovers on a tire swing. The last summer they will ever see each other's face. The first time I saw your face, I thought, wow. If there were a gorgeous Olympics, you would be a lock. And maybe I would be your key. And maybe love is a club that we both got into for free. And we just haven't stopped dancing for all these decades because we really like the music in here. And maybe if you asked me to, I would crawl through the veins of a blue whale on my hands and knees, photograph that Volkswagen-sized heart of hers, and place the picture underneath your pillow before you went to sleep. When you ask me about it, I'll probably just laugh, giggling, like I've got a handful of diamonds in my throat, and say, see, I told you the biggest heartbeat ever made, and now it's all yours. Thank you. All right. All right. One more. Oh, thank you. That's so generous. All right. So uh, this poem is brand new, not as new as the, the one with the grizzly bears in the, the <laughs> library. I literally wrote that. Man, I had such a good plane right over here. I was sitting next to this guy, Jay. His daughter is a, a concrete engineer and his son is a philosopher who uh, became a lawyer, he studies phenomenology. So we're talking about Husserl a little bit. It was fun. We had a really good conversation and Jay studied philosophy as well. Uh, in undergrad, but then decided to become a, a pharmacy major, something a bit more practical. And uh, we just had such a good conversation about his, his kid and like this grand heartbreak that he'd gone through. And so then he moved to like this very rural part of, of Washington state, apparently, and just lived in a cabin for, for a couple years and was clerking for a judge in a town of I think 900 people. And then one day he gets invited out by another one of the clerks on a boat and he meets his wife on that boat. And he starts a law firm, I think just outside that town, and then they merge with a really big law firm. So now he's just like, his life is great, it seems like. And he still does philosophy uh, in his own way. That doesn't really have anything directly to do with this next poem, except that I guess the poem is also about my journey as a young philosopher, as someone who was interested in beauty and truth and was trying to figure out what books had to do with any of that. I used to travel two hours a day to get to high school. I took the one bus to the seven bus to the Metro North Railroad, and then me and all the other scholarship kids walked up the hill uh, to get to my high school, Ride Country Day School. And all I would do on those trips is read and listen to music. I listened to Dipset and Tupac and Common and Black Star and Erica Badu and Jill Scott and Lauryn Hill. And that was the soundtrack to my teenage life. And those were the philosophers who taught me how to be courageous. They taught me to believe in rhyme, which as a friend's former mentor said, is a reminder of balance in the universe. So I started this poem in some ways back then, uh, but it took me many years to finish it. So the last thing I'll say before I start is uh, in addition to starting my new job at MIT this year, which has been fantastic, I've also been a scholar in residence at a local high school. So, I've spent this entire year writing poems with uh, 14 through 17 year olds. And uh, they've, yeah, they're great. They're a great group. They've taught me so much about uh, one, just what I didn't know. I mean, we're kind of hard on the smartphones for good reason, but they're far more politically savvy and, and aware than I was. When I was seven. I just didn't care about any of this stuff. I was trying to go to parties and be cute. You know, I really cared about being cute. I had a job at Foot Locker, which does come up in the poem. And, that was really at the core of my life, like going on MySpace, who was on my top eight on MySpace, Jordan's, and being beautiful. Like that. those are really my like primary points of, of focus. And my students now, both like the freshmen in my reading poetry class at MIT, and also these, these high school students, they care so much about the state of the world. You know? And I'm sure they have their inner you know, personal turmoil too, no doubt, right? no doubt those, those synapses are firing and the neurochemical stuff is still happening. But they really are thinking about climate change, they're thinking about state violence, they're thinking about mass incarceration. And that inspires me a great deal. When I became August's father, it shifted something in me because I realized all my students were someone's babies. I said, man, someone really took care of all of you to, to get here, that's, that's astonishing to me. It's just a classroom full of babies. There's 50 babies in here talking to me about Gwendolyn Brooks and Lucille Clifton and Robert Hayden and." Like I have to take care of you too in a, in a different way, you know, at a different stage of your life, but you've trusted me and in a way your, your parents have trusted me. And that's a big deal, man. This is really a serious thing we're doing, talking about literature in, in 2023. With you all knowing it's, it's a very complicated investment you've even made to make the choice to come here, right? To invest not just money, but time, your very life. You've given me a shard of your very life to come here to my class. So we gotta do it up, and I try. I really do try to turn it on during lecture, and it's been fun, it's been a good year. So this is Self-Portrait at 17. I'm about half the age I'll be, the first time I see the star maps in my son's eyes. I am air guitar in my parents' car, Radiohead in the headphones, and every sequence is a sunrise, every bar a brass key, Unfastening doors to the dungeons in my mind so magpies can fly free I improvise a cappella in my cardigan sweater. Never needed a just blaze beat to heat check. My mid-range is okay but I'm subpar from three. Footlocker employee discount keeps these Jordans on my feet fresh. I'm endless. But my heartache is relentless. Static in my mind, still undiagnosed, brain racing twice the speed my pen is. Most nights it's quiet. Genetically predisposed to violence, I presuppose. I spar with my pop just to stop the silence. Can you hear that? I'm a lion in a burlap sack. I'm a bar fight with both hands tied behind my back. I'm a boy enrobed in a pitch indigo night. Speed walking the block trying not to get got for this MacBook in my bag. It's battery warming the books I cram for AP English. Morrison and Faulkner matching my flows to their prose. Meditating on genius. My best friend is an Afro-Borinquen you r R&B prodigy from the South Bronx Reps the X as hard as anyone I've ever met That summer we are satellites Swaying at backyard barbecues Where I learn the steps that will carry me Through college, Ivy League bound Barely any bread in the bank account But a dream you couldn't fit in a stadium In this mosh pit heart This lucky swing This notebook unsullied by the worship of capital Brain untamed by trauma or vice Fresh to life in my white tee Caesar smooth as a platinum plaque, I think back and can still see this entire constellation of beloveds, this cloud of witnesses saying flourish, saying survive, saying gifts are meant to be given and your name is a call to halt the sun and break the chain, so shout out to my good name, to my big sisters, little brother, Ella Fitzgerald, Mary J. Blige, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and the entire insurgent legacy of South Yonkers, that place that raised me from the ground up like an engine or a loving home. Shout out to spoken word recited off the top of the dome by my homeboy on the A train trying to write his way into NYU. Shout out to the moment he gets there and to the moments over the years we finally learn to love the men staring back from the mirror. Blessings to the children. We will welcome into the world only weeks apart whose love is a kind of redemption. Shout out to redemption. And to sunsets at Van Cortland Park. And to my grandmother who in this poem is still alive, still spinning flowers out of fabric and metal wire. Into the Christmases, her laughter lifted that room and the projects three or four stories higher. Into the metronomes in our chests, catching time as it falls through our fists and comes back to us, like a dream so fresh you could still hear its faintest echoes, dancing like planets in the air. Thank you. All right. So this is a... I'm just on dad time all the time. So this is from the conclusion to the book, epilogue in three parts, uh, fresh off the presses from Knopf. Just got a great review in the New York Times, I'm so proud of. Taz is a poet, and just wrote a beautiful review of the book that really saw what I was trying to do which was approach, I mean, maybe it sounds obvious now, but I'm trying to approach a genre of poetry with a poet's sensibility. Uh, I want it to feel alive because I lived every part of the story I was trying to tell in this book. You know, I was an 11 year old in the library at a poetry slam. Then I was a 17 year old at the New Eurekin Poets Cafe. Uh, I was a 17 year old at Sarah Lawrence College when Aja Monet hosted a Hurricane Katrina relief benefit, and I saw Elizabeth Acevedo perform. As a 16 year old, I saw Carlos Andres Gomez perform that night. I saw teenage poets from all across New York City come and bear their soul uh, with a lot of curse words that I'd never heard uh, on stage before, because my parents are very religious. I wasn't even allowed to listen to hip hop music. Uh, those CDs I was telling you about, those were contraband. My boy Vincent, he used to go on LimeWire. I would pay him $5, and he would just make me a mix CD, <laughs> and I would sneak into my basement with my big headphones and I will just listen to hip-hop all day. And that gave me kind of the cadences to my everyday life. And one day, you know, during those times, I would sneak to the New Eureka. And as a teenager, I bought my first album downtown, Jewel Santana's From Me to You. And I don't know if y'all remember him, but in the early 2000s, Jewel's really had it. And I remember him just being a teenage boy when I was a teenage boy, and LeBron James was also a teenage boy. And I just remember feeling like this is the best time to be a team. Also, Joel Santana's real name is LeBron James, which is interesting. Uh, I told you life rhymes, there's balance in the universe. And I just remember thinking, I can do anything, you know, not just because of LeBron James and Joel Santana, but I really did feel like, I don't know, like, um, all right, I'm going to tell you a secret, which is not going to be a secret anymore because it's on the podcast, but it's fine. The first song I played my first day teaching at MIT was a Jewel Santana song and it totally was this kind of just like sentimental thing where I felt like I've been on this journey with this person for 17 years and in so many big moments of my life I would put on Dipset because it would put me back in that mindset I was in taking that two hour journey to go to high school which is that I'm gonna go to college and no one in my family had been to college but my mom you know and then my sister I was like I'm gonna go to college I'm gonna get a great job. I'm gonna have a good life and a bunch of kids. And this is gonna be awesome. And I'm gonna be unstoppable. And it's gonna have something to do with with poems. I don't know how, you know? I do not know any professional poets, (laughs) right? Which is the other beautiful thing about SLAM though, right? It's like people, a lot of people are there for a sense of community, right? There was no TikTok back in the day. There weren't really spoken word. I mean, we had deaf poetry jam, but people didn't really know how you got on Deaf poetry, it wasn't clear that you could make a, a career from this thing. So it was like, yo, I just like poems or I'm lonely and weird. And I want to be around other lonely, weird people. And so we create a scene, <laughs> we create a venue, we create a space. So this section of the book is, is in large part about what happened, like when my son was born and there was no touring. I was not writing poems. I did not write a poem for a year when August was born. And I didn't miss it. I did not care. I said, so what? I've been a writer since I was four years old. I've, I've written all the time. You know, I write pretty much every day. But when he got here, it clicked for me. I said, oh yeah, it's about people. That's why we write poems. That's why I don't miss it, because I have people. I have this, this baby, this small human organism that's here with me. I don't need that. I don't need to be beautiful on stage. I'm beautiful in real life. I'm beautiful to him. You know, he's incandescent. He shines when he wakes up. And it's hard. Sorry, just give me one more second with this. It's hard when you start to build your whole sense of value around that thing on stage, you know, that that thing at work. And I I didn't really come up around people who talked about how addictive that could be and how how misleading that could be, you could just start to think, yo, that's my best thing. My best thing is when I'm in front of the microphone, and I'm great when I'm up there. Great. (laughs) This is my best thing. This is what's most beautiful about me, full stop. And yeah, I guess fatherhood, I guess falling in love with somebody who had never seen one of my YouTube videos, there was something to that. And the first time she saw one, we were like married already, and she said, oh, that's nice. Like She thought it was fine. She said, oh, that's good. Like, that's, that's why people have like stopped you in the street. Is that? Th- oh, that's great. That's beautiful, honey, you know? And she didn't think it was bad. Like, you know, Pam did Poetry Slam in high school. Like, she was like, oh, this is pretty good. Like, solid, it's strong, right? But like, that's not, that's, that's not through our thing. Like, our thing is about dancing. We met in a jazz club, you know? So our thing's about dancing, and it's about like the shows we grew up watching, and, and it's about like growing up without money and how that shapes your relationship to language. I used to think that all salmon came in a can, you know? I was already in grad school. I was at Princeton before I got fresh salmon from a supermarket, like that. Everything came out of, collard greens came out of a can. <laughs> Cornbread came out of a box, right? Anyone here grew up eating Jiffy mix? That, that was my thing, right? I, I was the, the boy who made Jiffy for Thanksgiving, right? I made the corn muffins, right? That, so there was something too to that, just connecting with someone around that, that when we first stepped into our house, it was like a miracle. Mm. It, it felt like a, a miracle that I could I could change the paint on my walls, you know? Mm. <laughs> that I could set up my son's crib and put up his, his name, A-U-G-U-S-T. And my wife drew little animals on the wood panels. That's his room. I wrote this book for him, my beautiful, Afro-Latino little boy, because I knew he needed some Puerto Rican poets in his life, and I didn't really know that many. I knew Miguel, Miguel Algarin, because I knew the New Eureka Poets Cafe, but I didn't know Pedro Pietri yet. I didn't know Sandro M. Estevez yet. You know, I didn't know Tato Laviera. I didn't know, this, I didn't know William Carlos Williams was Puerto Rican. That's in the book too. <laughs> they don't tell you that in school. They tell you about the plums and the red wheelbarrow. They don't mention this brother's Puerto Rican mom. Hmm, suspicious, okay. I'm gonna read these pages, and we can talk. There's a playlist on my phone that's built entirely from the genius of John Coltrane, and I've been playing it for my son since the day he was born. It begins with Train's cover of my favorite things. In truth, I have no idea how the playlist ends because we never get there. By the time we arrive at Lush Life or Equinox during the Azure hours of the early morning, he's usually asleep again or else we have decided that we're done dancing across the kitchen and are on to another activity. We have a few hours before mom wakes up. The options unfold like a field before us. Most days we move right from the dances to time with poems as that feels like the most logical sequence. Early mornings after all are made for music. Some recent favorites of his, and you should know that my sense of the work's reception is based on feedback in the form of ear to ear smiles, and yelling in the midst of one or more stanzas in direct succession include Joy Priest's Little Lamp, Al Young's The Mountains of California, part one, and Something New Under the Sun by Steve Scafidi. The Scafidi poem opens with the sentence, it would have to shine, and every one of the days that begins this way seems to. Even the deep gray weather takes on new resonance hours to spend watching sheets of rain rearrange the backyard, making it much too muddy for our dog, Apollo 5, to play in. He doesn't always take this sort of shift in his routine well, Apollo, as he has recently had to adjust to having a new family member and is still getting used to the feeling that not all of our attention is focused on him. This conundrum is mostly my fault and in more ways than one, perhaps, naming him as I did for a god of poetry and light, a space shuttle, the theater where my mother first saw Smokey Robinson sing, and a cinematic revision of the greatest boxer of all time, his modern legacy renewed in the body of Michael B. Jordan. I'm named after a book in the Bible and an older brother who died before I was born. My mother takes her first name from her grandmother and her second from the tall Puerto Rican nurse in the delivery room where my grandmother first guided her into the world. My son, August Galileo, has a name that emerges from both African diaspora literature and a family commitment to studying the heavens. He is named for the legendary poet and playwright August Wilson, as well as for Black August, the yearly commemorative event in which people all across the world celebrate not only the revolutionary legacy of George Jackson, who was slain on August 21, 1971, but also the practice of freedom across a much larger stretch of human history, the founding of the Underground Railroad, the Nat Turner Rebellion, and the Haitian Revolution. Galileo was meant to gesture toward both the father of modern astronomy and the 1908 Fisk University speech delivered by W.E.B. Du Bois that bears his name, Galileo Galilei. It is one of the most powerful pieces of oratory I've ever encountered. In it, Du Bois writes, And you, graduates of Fisk University, are the watchmen on the outer wall. And you, Fisk University, intangible but real personality, builded of song and sorrow, and the spirits of just men made perfect, are as one standing Galileo, wise before the vision of death and the bribe of the lie. Names are an incantation of a certain kind. August Galileo reminds us And will hopefully remind our son to have courage in the face of unthinkable odds. Persistence in the midst of the seemingly impossible. An unflinching dedication to wonder. Respect for the essential drama of human life and the ceremonies that make it worthwhile. The other big difference since August's arrival, aside from the new routine at sunrise, is that there are toys everywhere. Many of which have names that are not to be found on the boxes we purchased them in the wolf throne, his swing, the device, a gray baby sling, and the rattlesnail, a rattle shaped just like a snail. This ever-expanding collective of objects makes it hard to walk through the living room, but a joy to be there. Once mom comes downstairs, it's party time again. We throw on a Catronada DJ set and dance until we are tired, falling to the couch in unison where we rest for a while. One of the great gifts of the black expressive tradition is that it refuses the notion of human immortality, especially as it is often imagined in our secular modernity through private property or conquest, and yet gives you moments where you feel invincible, endless. We do not live forever, but we do live on. We live for the children. We engage in protracted struggle so that they might inherit a planet worthy of their loveliness. While I once understood this largely in the abstract, this sense of things now animates my days. I can't hear Coltrane without thinking of my boy arriving here on a Sunday night, hours before dawn. Recently, while looking through old records, I found a copy of Train's debut album with Atlantic, Giant Steps. It felt like a sign. Around the same time, I discovered Michael S. Harper's 1970 collection of poems, Dear John, Dear Coltrane. There's a poem there, alone, that's been stuck in my head ever since I found it. A friend told me he'd risen above jazz. I leave him there. (laughs) Reading Harper, I'm reminded that there's an unimpeachable beauty here in the spaces where many say there is nothing to be studied, nothing to be learned or celebrated. In those interstices, the cafe, the community center, the poetry circus in the desert, The bar, the construction site, the public library, the open mic, line by line, brick by brick, we are inaugurating new worlds. Every time we touch the stage, we are reaching out to one another. We are stepping out on trust into the darkness that our dreaming might be the bridge between us. Thank you.
0: With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Joshua Bennett and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Bennett is a reader of Toni Morrison.
1: Oh yeah, I mean Toni Morrison changed my life. I mean, so my sister, She had a hardback copy of Song of Solomon, her novel, when I was a little boy, and I thought it was the Bible, right? Because it literally looked like the Bible to me. It had those kind of red, that red coloring on the side. And I mean, Milkman Dead, more than almost any character in American literature, I think changed the way I thought about the, the movement of, of time in a novel. I mean, what a character can mean. He, he felt so, so real to me, so lived in. Um, it's a, an astonishing book. Tar Baby is another book that I, I really love that, you know, Beloved. is not, yeah, Beloved's great. But I feel like people, well, they should know Beloved. I don't know if people still know Beloved anymore. I mean, The Times years ago said it was the greatest American novel ever written, which I don't disagree with.
0: This audience member asks about Bennett's time in the performance collective, *Strivers Row.
1: The hijinks, you know, I mean, so for example, we did a tour in England and we were scheduled to fly out there and we had a, a hookup through a, through a friend, through a dear friend of mine. And it just turned out that there were no tickets when we <laughs> were about two weeks out, right? They were like, oh yeah, by the way, this person stole all your money and now you have no tickets. So we threw a fundraiser show in downtown Manhattan to raise money to buy brand new tickets to be able to make our tour in the UK. And we called it Viewer's Choice. And we basically had an online poll, people could vote for their favorite YouTube videos and we performed those poems. Um, And we packed that show out in downtown Manhattan and we raised enough money to be able to fly to England. And it was just this incredible moment, I guess, where our supporters really showed out for us in this astonishing way. I mean, it still surprises me that Anyone comes to these, I mean, why do we do this as a culture? I don't, every couple of weeks in, in my class, I, I bring this up to my students. It's astonishing that we have this ancient practice as a species of, of writing poetry. You know, Alan Grossman says, it's the enemy of human forgetfulness. It's how we war against oblivion. But it also is just an excuse to get together, I think. Right? I mean, that's really what this book is about. The, the people in this book, none of them are trying to get rich. You know, Saul Williams had just moved to Brooklyn to be an actor. This is very interesting. What is happening? (laughs) The the, the critique of capitalism came on stage and then they they cut the lights. They said, shut that up, get rich, right? But, um, (laughs) in the library, right? But no, I mean, Saul was a grad student at NYU and he was walking past the Brooklyn moon and he saw that the windows were fogged up and he was like, I wonder what's happening in there. And then he goes in there and he meets, you know, Mums the Schemer and Jessica Care Moore, and he meets, you know, Most Deaf, and he becomes a part of this community. He writes one poem, memorizes it. That poem is Amethyst Rocks. He wins the New Eureka Grand Slam Championship with that one poem. He also gets discovered as an actor, then goes on to star in both Slam and Slam Nation within the next year, rave reviews at Sundance, and his whole life takes off after that, right? He, he, the rest of his life begins from this moment. And so, yeah, being in the striver's row, that reminder was just always in front of me that a single performance can seemingly change the trajectory of your life and that if you treat every performance that way, something really cool happens in your brain. You can tap into a different level of energy and intensity, but you can also fundamentally recognize that um, it's not all about you and that takes some, some pressure off of it, or at least it eventually did for me. I was like, oh yeah, this like, isn't about me. So it's about like who's in the room at the moment, about what maybe someone needs to hear. Some of it is how much I practice this thing. So I always try to run a poem, you know, backwards and forwards. I performed those poems before I came here today, you know? 17 years into the game and I'm still like, you run poems before you get on stage, man. That's an act of care. If there are two people in here, I was like, well, those two people gotta get a show, right? So make sure you got the stuff clean before you put it in front of anyone. So that's what stands out for me from that time. One more quick thing is how well everyone's doing. You know, like Zora was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize two years ago for her play Stew. Carvin's was George Washington and Hamilton on Broadway. Like Jasmine is doing her thing. I think Alicia helps run an organization in Texas that refurbishes abandoned black churches, right? Like Miles helped start a company. So people are just doing really well and, and doing, doing well in a range of, of human endeavors, which is always the pitch I make to parents as it pertains to spoken word. Right. They're like, well, I don't want my kid to be a poet, they're going to be a neurosurgeon. I was like, but wouldn't you want a charismatic, confident, very well-spoken neurosurgeon? Right? Wouldn't you want somebody who can just recite long passages from memory? I mean, it's a toolkit we're cultivating here. And most importantly, again, a community. People you can call up, and a really class-diverse community. You know, All those people I named, like, we came from every background you can imagine. Right? Some of us had been homeless before, some of us had doctors for parents. You know, that that's, was a very diverse group. <laughs> I think people looked at us, and like, oh, we're a black performance collective. And I was like, yeah, but we're from across the African diaspora, one. And also, we come from all these, these different kinds of places that inform the work. So, yeah, it was, it was a game changer. Shout out to my big sister, you know. We started Strivers Road because I sent her a, a G-chat message. And I was like, hey, I think we should start, like, a poetry group. And she said, okay, what would that look like? I said, like, I think we should call everybody. I would call a bunch of my friends from college and some other people I met through SLAM and saw on YouTube, and I think we can just go on tour. We'll tour colleges. And she said, OK, cool. Let's get it started. And she filled out the LLC paperwork. And uh, then we were off to the races, you know? But what incredible trust. Toya really believed in me, you know? So only a couple of years after 2008, after the market crash, she lost her job. She had a brand new baby boy. My nephew, Miles, was just born. He's like six feet tall now. But he was, he was a baby back then, right? And she trusted her little brother to kind of try to figure out how we could put some cash together and, and live a better life, you know? So the trust also stands out to me
0: from that moment. We trusted each other and, uh, and we flew. This question is if Joshua Bennett ever experienced a moment of curiosity that inspired him to become a poet. It's five years old. I was watching Malcolm X
1: in the theater, Spike Lee's biopic Malcolm X. Great movie. Don't know, necessarily, why you would take a five-year-old to see it. Um, but it's, it's the first movie I ever saw. was Malcolm X. And so I left the movie theater with my parents. I said, man, that was incredible. I want to know more about that guy. So my mom was like, we should read the Autobiography of Malcolm X. Right? His book is about 544 pages. But I said, okay, great. So I got my big red Webster's Dictionary, and my copy of Autobiography of Malcolm X. I just read that thing. It took me a really long time because I was five, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it took me a really long time to work through it. And I don't know, I mean, I guess ever since then too, I've had this really interesting relationship to Malcolm's legacy, like I'm writing a TV show now. We're adapting my most recent book of poetry, The Study of Human Life. Uh, we're working with Warner Brothers, great team over there, we got a development deal. And you know, we're on an alternate timeline in the show where Malcolm X came back from the dead um, in the mid 60s after he was assassinated. So it's a completely alternate version of US history. And I've just been thinking so much about his legacy, you know, about the speeches, and uh, the fact that he was student body president in middle school, right? In his like, largely white school in Nebraska. And I just think people don't think about him as a prodigy, right? People don't think about Martin Luther King as a prodigy. He went to college, he was 16 years old. I mean, this is remarkable. These were prodigies, (laughs) essentially, right? These are rhetorical and otherwise geniuses. And I think they kind of get frozen in time, right? Just as, you know, as, activist par excellence, and that's important. But he was a poet, you know? And when he was incarcerated at Norfolk Prison Colony, he wrote a letter to his brother Philbert. and I quote this in the book, where he says, only poetry could fill the vast emptiness inside of men. I mean, I just thought, wow, Malcolm wrote that. What kind of poets was this brother reading at this moment in time, right? We also know he discovered his love of debate while he was incarcerated, right? So I've just been thinking a lot about him, his legacy as a prison intellectual, as a poet, as a rhetorician. Um, one of my students, she's writing her dissertation right now and um, she's writing basically a history of the house slave, right, as, as a rhetorical figure. So she's writing a lot about Malcolm X's speeches and how he leverages the figure of the house slave as a way to talk about black life in the United States. So he's always with me, like every, everywhere I go, right? Everywhere I go, Malcolm is, is there. Um, so that was a moment of curiosity that I think really took me somewhere unexpected and, uh, and every day I'm just I'm learning more and more about just what I'm supposed to be doing while I'm on Earth. I try to always be curious about that. because I think poems are part of it, but out of my hunch is that that's not the whole thing. So I'm trying to always remain curious about what I'm supposed to be doing with uh, my one precious life, as it were. I'm kind of really interested. So June Jordan is another figure like this for me. Y'all know June Jordan? Black feminist, poet, essayist, critic. Ooh, world historical intellectual, June Jordan is incredible, started a program called The Voice of the Children in the mid 70s, which was a Saturday school for black and Puerto Rican kids in New York uh, where they would just write poetry. And she had a whole list of rules, like as an adult, you couldn't interrupt the kids while they were writing, you couldn't stand over them, you couldn't judge the poetry. It was supposed to be this space where they were totally free to just be a part of the writing process. That, and she also created an anthology called The Voice of the Children with their poems published. Then in the 90s, when she went to go teach at Berkeley, She transformed that into a program called Poetry for the People, right? which was this completely kind of wide-open, transgenerational school program which also centered poetry from different cultures, people from different ethnic backgrounds. And uh, when I discovered June's work, it radically transformed my life. It transformed what I thought was possible. You know, she collaborated with architects like Bucky Fuller. She wrote this essay uh, which was published in Esquire magazine under the title Instant Slum Clearance, but really the, the project was called Skyrise for Harlem. And her idea was that you would go to the projects in Harlem and build luxury housing on top of the projects so people didn't have to move out of their neighborhood, they could just move up, right, into better housing. And that kind of imagination, I just thought was so important. I was like, man, are we, are, we do, are poets doing that now? We need to be. <laughs> Thank y'all, this is fantastic.
0: Yeah. That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library event with Joshua Bennett. Make sure to catch our next podcast with Rebecca F. Kwong. Speculative fiction superstar Rebecca Kwong is the author behind the number one New York Times bestselling, The Poppy War series. Her first standalone, Babel, envisions an alternate universe British empire powered by a unique form of alchemy, the innate magic of language translation. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.